Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am joined by Kristen Rector, formerly Lundgren, who played a key role in what many would consider including myself, to be the most successful volunteer effort in major sport event history. No pressure there, Kristen. How are you doing? Oh, my (laughs) goodness. Well, with that introduction, um, and uh, I'm I'm feeling a little uh, uh, timid about things, but uh, it just... The overwhelming feeling is just so much gratitude to reconnect with you personally, Christian, and to um, you gave me an opportunity uh, in preparing for this time together for me to have a really lovely walk down memory lane and um, just to reflect on just the incredible opportunity that I think I personally had in um, being a part of such a successful games. And I, I do agree with you. I think it's, it is one of the, certainly one of the best organized and run games. Um, And uh, I think there's a lot for so many people to be proud of. Well, I'm very much looking forward to taking a nice leisurely stroll down memory lane (laughs) with you in the coming minutes. But before we get to memory lane, I want to talk about today. Uh, Sure. I mean, it's been 18 years since we had a conversation. So, Krista, what are you up to these days? Well, currently, I am a um, product manager at Willis Towers Watson. I'm part of a technology team for our um, benefits delivery and administration segment. And um, the team that I'm on, we have the responsibility for um, a tool that helps our our clients, retirees, uh, easily enroll in an individual health care plan. Um, so, it's kind of interesting that I've landed um, sort of back in not so much recruitment, but certainly um, getting people to fill out applications, as it were. Um, and then I'm also the executive director for the Nova Chamber Music Series. Um, we're a, a small, um, uh, primarily, it, it, it's been an, a small organization that's been around since um, about 40 years. Um, not an actual ensemble, full time ensemble, but uh, the, the series delivers, you know, six to eight concerts a year, kind of a part-time role for me, but um, keeps me connected with, um, you know, delivering some exciting experiences in, in the Salt Lake community. That's so interesting. Do you happen to be a musician? No, I'm, I'm not a musician myself. Uh, my uh, first uh, job after the Olympics was uh, working for the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera and the development office. Uh, they had uh, recently merged and uh, had, and were starting the Deer Valley Music Festival um, as a summer project. And I w- managed all of the, uh, the donor events that were part of the music festival and then ended up uh, expanding my responsibilities into fundraising. So had a connection with the musicians and with the you know, the amazing organization that Utah Symphony and Utah Opera are in the community, found my way back uh, to Nova oh, probably about five years ago. So in both of these roles, what's the impact of this current virus situation had? I mean, are you sheltering in place, working from home? Do you still go into an office? And with respect to the musicians and the performances and things like that, I mean, that's not something that they can really do right now as we're all sitting at, at home, you know, waiting things out at home. 
Yeah, it's it certainly has um, impacted um, both of my both of my job responsibilities. Um, I think the the major thing that I'm so grateful for in both um, scenarios is that I can work from home. Normally, with my job at uh, at Willis Towers Watson, we we have an office location right downtown on Main Street, actually, right across from Gallivan Plaza. And I can there's still some look of the games that um, I can see from our uh, window, uh, which is which is quite nice. And we actually had um, we have a lot of teams that do work remotely. Again, grateful that we could we could get a, something set up at home and continue to work without much disruption. Again, another thing I'm grateful for is that there's a the company understands that that uh, you know the employees' uh, health and well-being, both mental and physical, is of utmost importance. And you know, being able to navigate through these challenging times and still stay uh, focused and productive to what we're you know what we're responsible for. And then on the on the uh, nonprofit side, certainly we've got some incredible resources here in the community with the Utah Division of Arts and Museums and the Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks um, support, um, certainly from the governor. I think Nova is a it, it has the good fortune that because we're not we don't have a full-time ensemble of artists that our season was only disrupted by two concerts being canceled. Um, and we've had, we've been digging into the wonderful archives that we have um, and sharing, still continuing to share some um, chamber music experiences with our, you know, with our uh, supporters. And we've been busy uh, planning as we close out our fiscal year and look at next fiscal year, you know, uh, kind of scenario planning, basically. Um, what might it look like if we're able to get back into the concert halls, you know, by the start of when our season normally starts, which is in, is in the fall? Or what might it look like for us to continue to deliver from the archives or uh, creating new um you know, creating new ways to deliver chamber music. Um, there's there's been a lot of innovation there, I think, with with uh, musicians recording themselves at home. It's kind of a day by day thing, and uh, just again, I just find myself in in both circumstances grateful to be uh, working with people who really care about what they what they're doing and uh, wanting to have something positive come out on the other side of this. So. All right. Well, Kristen, I, I think this idea of the innovation is quite interesting. You know, we're seeing it professionally as people yes. are working remotely mm -hmm. and we're seeing it creatively, as you just mentioned, with artists and ensembles uh, performing pieces individually, then uh, collaging them together electronically. Um, but we're not here to discuss those things <laughs> principally. Uh, we are going to hop in the time machine and go back 20 years or so. So as we look back, what were you doing before joining the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? And just how did you come to SLOP? So I was uh, living in uh, Vail, Colorado. Um, I had been there for about 10 years and I had I was working um, at the Vail Valley Foundation, which is um, an organization in the community that does educational, cultural and athletic events. And 
had the good fortune. I again, I, I my my career in many ways has been just a series of bringing my transferable experiences and kind of being knowing the right people and and having people give me an opportunity to to do something that maybe on paper, you know, it didn't look like I'm qualified to do, and that was certainly the case with the. With the opportunity that I had to be the volunteer manager for the World Alpine Ski Championships in 1999, my uh, I had been working at a small coffee shop called the Daily Grind, and it was to kind of a local local specialty coffee place, and we would provide food service to the television broadcasters that would come and and do the uh, do the production for all of the world the world cup events and so when i submitted my resume that was kind of what pulled me out of the pile so to speak to get an interview and uh so we had the uh, responsibility for you know recruiting 1500 volunteers which which certainly seemed daunting at the time but you know when you think of the, that in the scope of the the olympics it really that maybe that's one you know one venue but through that, uh, there were in the early days of the Salt Lake Olympic Committee, there were people like uh, Hervig Demshar and Spencer Uckles and uh, Karen Corfanta, who was up at Park City um, Mountain Resort, that came to you know observe our plans for organizing the World Alpine Ski Championships to maybe apply some of the lessons learned, you know, to SLOCKS efforts. And I spent, I actually had the good fortune to spend a lot of time with with Spencer Eccles. Which note to self, or no, I had no clue what the Eccles name meant living in Colorado. But anyway, he he uh, let me know that when um, SLOCK was hiring for you know volunteer recruitment. Uh, and just volunteer staffing in general that he recommended that I, you know, submit my my resume and and then that's what got, you know, got me an interview here and uh I moved to uh Salt Lake in July of 99. So it was very much a part of the early planning and preparations that went into the recruitment and selection and placement of what ultimately ended up being the 26,000 volunteers. There are two things I want to <laughs> mention there that I that really caught me. Number one, from a career standpoint, mm-hmm. you had developed these sets of transferable skills that kind of yes. carried you from one role to another. And it's been interesting talking with all of our colleagues that we've mm-hmm. interviewed so far for this podcast. Some uh, knew from the outset that events were in their blood and this is what they wanted to do for a living. They knew when they were teenagers, I want to work Mm. for the Olympic games. Others were like me where I just (laughs) completely stumble into opportunities unplanned. And I just kind of fell into these kind of things. And you're kind of in the middle where, where opportunities presented themselves, but you developed a skill set that allowed you to take advantage of opportunities that you didn't think were going to be there at the time, but mm-hmm. they kind of serendipitously presented themselves to you. Yeah. I think, I think one thing for me that's been a common thread and what certainly drew me towards, certainly what drew me to Colorado originally, I think what drew me to, I've never been one of those people that that, you know, know exactly what I want to do. I'm cert- like you said, I'm sort of in the middle there, but I've always had this innate desire to be a part of something bigger than myself. And, um, for me, my fulfillment, uh, personally has not come from how much money I make. It's been, it's come from the experiences that I've had. And I, I, I kind of, I think I probably 
would look to the experiences that I had with my family, just in growing up, we moved around a lot, um, lived in a lot of, um, we had the opportunity to live, um, in South America and, uh, I moved in, I moved quite a bit and got to just kind of see the world, um, you know, at a stage in your life where you're, you're formative years. And so it's certainly, so being a part of something bigger and just has, I think, been a big driver for me um, in terms of what I pursue and, and what I, you know, what I enjoy and, and get fulfillment from. So becoming part of something bigger. Yeah. Yeah, geez. I mean, it's hard to get bigger right. than the Olympic Games, right? You I go know. from a from you know that's not to diminish uh, fifth World Championship events sure. I mean, because those are big events. And like you said, you had a team of fifteen hundred volunteers, but to go from fifteen hundred to twenty six thousand, that's a bit of a leap. What did you think when you're like, oh, I'm presented with this opportunity? And, oh, we need twenty six thousand people. <laughs> I think I was. Um, again, I was driven more by the opportunity and the excitement of the opportunity than to really be scared of not knowing what I didn't know. Um, I, I think I've just, again, I'm wired in a way that I'm, I'm a resourceful person and I'll, and I, I get some pleasure in figuring things out. So I think I just looked at it as, oh, wow, I have another opportunity. And as long as there are people that, um, that have that same, you know, sort of spirit of, yes, let's, we've got to circle the wagons and we've got to figure out how to get this done. We may not have all the answers, but that's okay. We're going to work hard and we're going to dig in and, and just, you know, figure it out. Um, yeah, I guess I maybe did, wasn't, uh, maybe I was naive enough to know what I didn't know <laughs> or should be scared of maybe. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this, Kristen, um, in, in Olympic games, you know, some environments, some host cities, some regions of the world where these events are hosted, they don't have a, a culture of volunteerism per se. Right. Um, but that's not the case here in Salt Lake city. I mean, uh, volunteer culture, I think is very rich here. Did you know that coming in or is that something that you just kind of happily discovered once you arrived? Um, I think I would say maybe a combination of, of the two. I, I knew that there, I knew coming into it that there was certainly a, a history of, of World Cup events up in Park City, uh, World Cup events up in Deer Valley. So there was that foundation, at least from the sport level. I don't know that I fully appreciated um, in terms of the volunteerism that exists within the, you know, the community here in, in Salt Lake. And I think in many ways, one of the reasons I'm, I'm so glad that I'm, that I have stayed in Salt Lake is because it is, you know, we talk about small Lake city and it really is, we have these amazing big city and big world experiences and opportunities, but it still is a small town. And I think with that, you get to know the people, you get to know people and you get to know, and, and they're passionate and, and care and really care about whether it be the environment or whether it care, whether it be about, again, arts in our community, um, education, families, um, it just, the sensibilities I think that are here, I certainly didn't know the depth of that volunteerism. I do remember when I, I, Again, I don't remember what month it was, but it was within the first few months that I was here and there was a tornado 
that went through downtown Salt Lake and created some reason, not huge damage, but some reasonable damage. And there was some flooding in the streets and, and how quickly and how responsive the community was to just addressing that. And I do remember being struck by that, like, wow, that's really great that, you know, people are willing to jump in and give in that way. So, so what was the strategy that you decided to deploy or employ to recruit a huge number of volunteers? Because you say, okay, I've got 26,000 positions. And of course that, that need fluctuated over time. You know, people refine their headcount requirements and so on, but you know that there's going to be some attrition along the way. But so you think, okay, well, I need to recruit X number of people if I want to fill Y number of positions. Yeah. You know, what was the strategy that you and your colleagues there in the volunteer department formulated to recruit and select such a large number of volunteers? Um, so it was it was kind of a um, it was a targeted approach. So and and of course looking at you know, looking at the that cadre of volunteers that had already been engaged in events, you know, World Cup events, as an example, like at some of the the Olympic venues, one uh, having a looking at um, working with corporations to to be able to draw from um, you know from the employee base either for for giving, for example, having corporations give their employees time off to volunteer. I think also looking very early on in terms of start early and it would have to be a phased approach and and not only to um, so get applications in, getting people to commit, but also being able to you know process them through our and this is, Christian, of course, were you, <laughs> I remember you so fondly with this is how are we going to get, uh, we ended up with, I don't know if you, you probably do, of course would remember this, but we had, my count was like 40,000 records in our database that we could potentially match to volunteer positions, but being able to, you know, take the possible applicants and then have an effort to do some interviews and then do proper placement based on, you know, a criteria and then make an assignment and have them start to go through, you know, training and, and preparations. Yeah, it had to be done. And we probably said enough times, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So, so using a phased approach, I think also media was a big part of it. So, and having community events, we had a big, I think it was in like March of 2000, uh, we hosted an official launch event of the volunteer uh, recruitment efforts um, and our official call for volunteers. And, you know, as part of that was being really clear about what the requirements were for for volunteering and the kinds of attributes that we were looking for within an Olympic volunteer and just creating that excitement and enthusiasm. So having smaller events in the community for recruitment, whether that be at like the Salt Lake uh, Arts Festival, having a booth there to, to make people aware. So a lot of early, early work, certainly. And I think, yeah, I think it was expectations were exceeded, I think, in terms of the number of of people that we were, that were interested in volunteering. Um, and I think in many ways, you know, it's certainly something like the Olympics is, is, uh, so it's just intrinsically something that people want to be a part of in some way.
what's interesting about that is uh, although the work can be very challenging at times, I think for most people, both volunteers and also for the SLOC staff, it was it was a fun project to be involved with. You know, oh, it was a absolutely. lot of fun. Um, and so I want to I, I want to ask you about some of the fun or the entertaining or the <laughs> humorous experiences that you had in recruiting and selecting and training and uniforming and scheduling oh. and deploying this army of volunteers. You know, we had uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of an appropriate way to say this, but there was there wasn't a lot of understanding of what were some of well, like what was some of the infrastructure that had to be in place for us to be able to do these recruitment efforts. Um, so we had to get creative and be resourceful. So for example, there was a, a small <laughs> there was a small basement office area in the 222 building that we just kind of expanded and took over in terms of creating the what we call the Team 2002 Service Center. So essentially a call center. But again, that was in the early days, it was a lot of overtime by staff, people like John Whitlock and Christina Miller and Leslie Johnson and uh, Rich Kennedy. And I mean, there were, it, we, we had some paid people, but we also had some interns that just were, you know, that eventually moved into paid positions. And, and then we had people who just, they wanted to be a part of things early on. And so we, I think, saw ourselves as just being this sort of this lifeline to the inquiries that were coming in at that time. And we didn't, again, we didn't really have the infrastructure in place in terms of a, I mean, we eventually got a hotline and, and uh, certainly we had to start thinking about, okay, what if people can't fill you know, their applications out online. I think we were thinking the demographics of seniors, like they don't have home computers today, the way, the way they do today and maybe not as comfortable. And so setting things up at, lo at local libraries so that people knew that they could go in and um, fill out applications using the computers at the, at the library. We, uh, you know, had to start thinking about how do we process those, those paper applications and just a lot of, uh, we'll let, we're going to figure this out. We know it has to be done. We know that, that we have to, we, we've got to get to that number, so to speak. So how do, how do we do that? One of the things that we did was, again, we put out a recruitment effort uh, for volunteers to work in the TSC and um, we sent out a letter to probably Oh, 5,000 or so people that we had at that time that might be interested in pre-games opportunities. And as part of the letter, <laughs> and you'll have to maybe bleep this or whatever, but we talked about the requirements. And one of the requirements was a minimum of six shits per month. I don't know how many people looked at that letter before it was actually mailed, but nobody caught it. <laughs> And then uh, it wasn't till after it was out that we realized the the error. And uh, so that was one that was uh, definitely maybe created some sense of panic initially, but it uh, it's a great story now. <laughs> it is a great story. It's one of the all time great stories. How Microsoft Word spell check didn't catch it. 
I don't oh. know, but the simple omission of a single letter, the letter F, I know, <laughs> uh, in the spelling of a word, uh, caused yeah. all kinds of consternation for people. Oh, yes, it, it was. Yes. It was. It was super funny. Now you mentioned some people there. Yeah. When you said that, the memories just started coming back. Sure. Christina sure. Miller, uh, Leslie. Now, Rich Kennedy, I just interviewed Rich oh, last good. week, and oh, his awesome. podcast is now up. I posted okay. it yesterday, so you can hear Rich's podcast. But yeah, there was this whole little team, and yep. they were all just wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And it was an absolute joy to work with you and your colleagues there in the volunteer department. As you look back at your time there in Salt Lake, who were some of the people that were just really, you know, interesting, larger than life personalities or inspiring or mentors? Who were some of those people that just really stood out for you? Oh, that I feel like that's just so unfair. (laughs) I know Uh, it's a tough question. It it is. It is. And and um, I, of course, I've stayed in Salt Lake um, and I have I have enduring, you know, uh, friendships and, and interactions with people from, you know, from the very, very beginning. Yeah. I, I think I shared with you, I'm, uh, I'm in a book club that was started, you know, originally by, I believe it was Sharon Kingman. She started it when she moved to, to Salt Lake. And then there were, you know, as, as, uh, as women moved to, to Utah and joined the book club and it grew in numbers. Um, and then, when the games were over, there was sort of this sense of, you know, do we, do we want to, you know, just, uh, it's run its course, so to speak. And, uh, there've been, you know, about 12 ladies that have, have stayed. Some of them didn't join until after the games. And so I'm just, you know, grateful to the women that are part of the, the book club today, um, or that started it. And then even, you know, that have continued on just having that constant. Um, and we, it's, it's funny because with the book club, we've, we've tried to have over the years, women joined that were not part of the Salt Lake organizing committee. And it just doesn't work. It's not a fit because inevitably we always come back to like, that's what we have in common. And, and it's sort of one of those things that you don't get it unless you've experienced it. And so they might last for a couple for a little bit, but then they kind of move on because we can't seem to get past, you know, talking about the good old days, so to speak. Now, I actually yeah. want to ask you about your experience during games time because you, yeah. you, you spend all this time recruiting these people. But what was your actual role during the games themselves? Um, During the games themselves, I was the uh, program manager in the telecom department. So I was uh, responsible for managing the staffing portion of the sponsorships that companies like uh, IBM and uh, Lucent, which I don't even think they're around (laughs) anymore, AT&T and uh, Quest at the time. Um, So part of their sponsorship was providing volunteers and contractors in some cases and and some loaned executives. So um, managing that staffing piece. Um, And then I had I had established, you know, a very strong relationship with with Deer Valley, with the volunteer manager there, Marilyn Stinson, when I first moved to Utah and uh, was involved with a lot, a lot of the, the test events that they did early on. And um, so got really 
really connected, I think, to to the volunteers that that uh, that are that were part of Deer Valley at, at games time or pre games games time. And so I also played kind of an HR role up at up at the Deer Valley at Deer Valley uh, during the games. And then that's one that has been an incredible since since the the games ended. I have been a I have been a volunteer myself up at Deer Valley. So this last uh, World Cup event was my my 20th year as a volunteer for the World Cup events and so many of the volunteers that um you know were part of the pre-games experience are still volunteering to this day and uh it's um again it's been something that's just been really special to stay connected in that way to something that started you know for me well over 20 years ago <laughs> Well, it sounds to me like these uh, games, these Salt Lake games had a really significant impact on your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, when you talked about the bigger than life or someone that that has impacted me very much initially and um, is a part of where I am today as well is um, John Whitlock. So um, he I consider him my first friend um, when I moved to Utah. And uh, we one of the things that we that we worked on together in the early days was, um, which I think informed a lot of what you did, Christian, for for the work that you did with the Personic database and and uh, sort of that integration with was, was it Monster Monster.com? Yeah, for the but, training. <laughs> yes. So we had um, what today I now know is a whole user experience journey map, but we worked through what would be the, um, basically what we were calling the volunteer selection process. So, um, you know, you bring in your, your, um, I remember us doing a whole like whiteboard session, just mapping out from the time that we're recruiting volunteers to the time that they get sent their offer letter and then move into the next phase. And, um, and uh, he's now leading the user experience efforts at um, at Willis Towers Watson, and uh, he is he's the one that gave me the opportunity to come into my role as a as a product manager. Which again, on paper, I'm not a you know I'm not a product manager, but I have those transferable skills and experiences. So it's interesting because I don't see him as often um, as certainly as as I did when we were working at Slock together, but I've, I've had to, I've had some things that I've shared with him that I've, again, oh my gosh, John, I've, we're working on this, uh, you know, we're working on the application workflow for uh, my product. And I just can't help but thinking about our efforts in, uh, at the organizing committee. So. Yeah. Where you are in front of the whiteboard and you're drawing yeah. a bunch of <laughs> rectangles and diamonds and lines yep. connecting them yep. all and yep. all that kind of fun stuff. And, and I, I'm going to say, I think the other thing that I, that I uh, recognized is um, the time that you and I spent, spent together, you were, you know, you were helping to gather what today I'm, you know, I talk about when I talk about user requirements and uh, again, not knowing that that's what that was, but you, you were, I, my recollection is just your, you asked great questions. You were trying to, you know, just understand what it was that we were trying to solve for and uh, created this great sense of relief, like 
okay, we have a solution for this and you made it look so easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say uh, it wasn't easy. I think the challenge we had is that we were working with a hodgepodge of systems that were, yes. none of them were really fit for purpose. You know, we, yep. we were just taking things that were out on the market yep. and trying to Frankenstein them together. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. And I know it created a lot of frustration amongst the user base trying, you're like, Hey, we're trying to manage this volunteer process. And we have have tens of yep. thousands of people and we're trying to use tools that really weren't meant for that and so i appreciate your patience and everyone else's patience oh. as we try to we try to muddle our way through it yeah yeah again i think it's it's that sort of that sense of being resourceful being uh you know knowing that you need to improvise and maybe adapt to things um there's always I'm I'm certainly still find or i'm finding in my role that um sometimes you have to like you said, I I'm going to start using that Frankensteining things together because I usually say duct tape and twine, but Frankensteining is is a good is a good term. Well, yeah, I call it Frankensteining because Perfect. when you actually get it to work, you think it's alive, and then you realize it's pretty horrific, and mm -hmm. then you just join the mob with your torches and you want to burn that thing at the stake because yep. <laughs> it's not a great system. But at the end of the day, you know what? It worked. Yeah, and you were able to deliver. Um, like I said, a volunteer workforce who I believe is uh, really unparalleled uh, in the history of the games. And I, I know I'm biased when I say that, but <laughs> but having seen uh, yeah. other events who have also deployed uh, great volunteer workforces, let's make no mistake. But I think that the, the Salt Lake effort was truly special in any number of ways. Well, we could talk all day. Yes, we could. About all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but you're a person that's got one full-time job and then running a nonprofit. And I know you're a very, very busy person. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. At the beginning of our conversation, or actually prior to the beginning of our conversation, I gave you some assignments. So we want to get to yes. those. Yes. So let's take assignment number one. Assignment number one is a song. Is there a particular song that you listened to back in the day? It could have been driving to and from the office, or it could have been a song during a competition or something. But there's a song that you hear it today, and it just takes you right back to Salt Lake 2002. It does. So the one I'm going to go with, I actually had two, but I saw you already have one on um, on the uh, on the list. Um, and that was a Beautiful Day by U2. But that one is covered. So the one I'm going to go with is um, Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. And so I had a I had a cassette tape for my car um, when I drove from Colorado to Salt Lake. And uh, that song was playing as I was climbing up the on, on Route 6. You kind of I guess you come out of price and then there's sort of like this sweeping like descent down as it starts to go downhill and I just and the wide open spaces and just this there was something about that that just resonated as being part of this whole new chapter that I was about to be a part of. And so, um, yeah, that's I mean, to this day, when I when I hear that song, I I think back of my drive from uh, from Vale to Salt Lake. All right, the Goo Goo Dolls. That's awesome. We're going to definitely <laughs> add that one to the list. I'm super okay. excited to have that. Man, I'm thinking, when's the last time I even heard of the Goo Goo Dolls? I mean, it's yeah. been forever. <laughs> but then when's the last time I heard of cassette tapes? I know, right? <laughs> and it just took me back. I'm like, yeah, you know, when I actually joined Slock, 
the car that I had, that's what it uh-huh. had. I had a cassette layer in it. Yeah. And, um, and then, um, it didn't get very good gas mileage. And because I was commuting a little bit further, I thought, oh, well, I need to get a car with better gas mileage. And I got yep. one that had a CD player in it. Oh, but, yeah. Upgrade. Yeah. Upgrade. But yep. cassettes. I know. That's classic. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. That's great. Now let's talk about the food. The food. Particular restaurant that you like to go to when you were at Slock? Um, so the Oasis. So I, uh, I lived on second South between like seventh and eighth East. And I, of course, started working at the 222 or 255 or the 256 building, then 222. And so it was just, it was not only somewhere that you, I could go to, you know, during work, but also, you know, was close to my home and I loved, I'm a huge fan of uh, restaurants with outdoor patios. I just, I think that's one of, you know, the climate that we have here in the Intermountain West is just so conducive to just sitting on a patio and having lunch and talking with friends and kind of not, I don't want to say wasting the afternoon way, but you know, just, uh, and to do that in just the beautiful outdoor setting is, is nice. And then they're, they're the, Golden Braid bookstores attached there. And so kind of, you can just kind of make a whole day of it. Um, and they're still there, which I, which I love. And one of, you know, my favorite salads that's on the menu is still on the menu today. So, um, I don't go there as often, but used to love to go there and, and always brings back great memories when I, when I go back there today. Yeah, I really like that place too. Actually, someone else mentioned it. I'm trying to remember who it was. I'll, I'll remember after. <laughs> but uh, but I, I like to go there for the tuna steak sandwich. I thought it was really good, oh, the tuna yeah. sandwich. Yep. And yeah, it had that bookstore attached. And that was kind of before having food in a bookstore was a thing, you know, before right. Barnes & Noble and started opening up little yep. cafes in their bookstores yep. and things like that. So they were a bit of a trendsetter in that respect. And I really like that place. So thanks for bringing back that memory. Sure. Okay, to wrap us up. Yes. Do you have an Olympic memory that just gives you all the good feels? Oh, again, I feel like that's an unfair one. Um, but uh, what I'm going to go with is it's a it's a, a story that involves my my now husband. So I I I met my husband here in in Utah and uh, was actually set up by some um, mutual friends. One who was uh, who I'd worked with in. Uh, Scott Bloom, he he worked, he and I worked together at the Vail Valley Foundation on the World Championships, and he and his family moved to Utah. So they they uh, they set us up. But my husband's is uh, he was a he had just started um, learning how to learning to skate so that he could play hockey. And so the different um, experiences that he was able to have um, as we were dating that just I didn't I think there were moments I didn't appreciate how cool it was that he was getting to have these these experiences are maybe more fully appreciated you know as our as our relationship has grown but he um he grew up in upstate New York he had been to the um Lake Placid games as a kid and through um my uh or I was working with Lana Quinn, who is from Canada, and she had some some connections to the to uh, a foundation up in in Canada 
uh, Trevor Lewis, I think was, it was his foundation, but I was able to get a ticket to the gold medal round of the, um, of the hockey game between uh, USA and Canada. And uh, just, Again, I had it wasn't it wasn't anything I had to pay for it, but I was only able to afford a single ticket. And uh, Jeffrey got to sit. They had made some extra seating with some bar stools, which was kind of random, seemed kind of random. But he got to go to the game. And then um, after the after the games were over, there was a big do you remember they had that big sale of (laughs) just trash bags and yeah granola bars. I mean, there were just all kinds of things that were for sale. So we actually, we owned the bar stool that he sat in at the gold medal game. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, and there's so many, so many others, but, um, that's one that just, um, you know, kind of has, is, near and dear to my heart because we are now, we are now husband and wife. So, well, I'm glad that it all ended on a very positive <laughs> okay, note yeah. and you lived happily ever after. Lived, there now, you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, that's a, that's a fitting end, I think, to our little <laughs> episode here. Now, Kristen has been a huge blast. I've really enjoyed the oh, stories. Likewise. If people want to get back in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing professionally or with the foundation or the nonprofit, the the ensemble, what's sure. the best way to to do that? Well, I am on um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm not using that as much um, these days. Um, also, have a, a Instagram. Perfect. Thank you very much, Kristen. And listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll join you next week. Kristen, thank you so much. What a delight. 